Welcome back to the Wednesday Blog with me, Sean Kane. It's Wednesday, 31 August 2022. This week, the third and final part of the season finale. A tale of my longest commute to date. I had a restless night on board the auto train. From the flashing lights to my right as the curtains in my roomette with the rocking of the train, to the audible voices in the corridor beyond, to the frequent bumps and lurches on the rails. Still, after about seven hours, I decided to get up, shower, and get dressed for the day ahead. I had breakfast in the dining car as we crossed the James River and rolled through Richmond, Virginia. That capital city was radiant in the morning sun. At 9.30, a good half hour ahead of schedule, we pulled into the northern terminus of the auto train in Lorton, Virginia, a suburb of Washington, D.C., nestled in the hills near the Potomac. I stepped down onto the platform soon after, collected my car, and drove into the Virginia morning bound for my main stop of the day. Virginia is one of the two oldest English colonies in North America. Founded in 1607 with the establishment of Jamestown, the Puritans of New England, better known as the Pilgrim Fathers, didn't arrive until 13 years later in 1620. Whereas the Puritans established a theocracy in the North, here in the South, the Virginians established a plantation society focused on wealth and farming. The plantations of Virginia inspired the culture and social order for the rest of the South down into the present. In some ways, these plantations are akin to the ranches of the Southwest and the haciendas of the old Spanish colonies, because they are all focused on the same overarching thing, using the land for its profits. It was one such plantation that I was driving towards that morning as I passed Fort Belvoir, Mount Vernon the home of the first president of the, of the United States, George Washington. I've spent a lot of time in D.C. compared to the rest of the East Coast, but in all those trips, I've never made it out to Mount Vernon, largely because I haven't had a car on most of those trips to make the journey, or because I just couldn't fit it into a busy schedule. So, upon seeing how close the auto train station in Lorton is to Mount Vernon, I knew I had to fit a stop in. Mount Vernon sits on high ground, overlooking a bend in the Potomac about 15 miles downriver from Washington, D.C. The mansion house itself was built first by Washington's father, Augustine Washington, in 1734, on lands that the Washington family had owned since 1674. George Washington began inheriting parts of the estate in 1754 before becoming its sole owner in 1761. The image of himself that he most wanted to be remembered by, that of Farmer George, is best realized there at Mount Vernon, which has been carefully and diligently restored to its appearance in 1799, the year of Washington's death, by its current owners, the Mount Vernon Ladies' Association. Arriving on the grounds, I first made my way towards Washington's tomb, 
wanting to see as much of the outdoor themes to see there in the morning before the afternoon heat index well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit set in. At one point, there was talk of burying Washington in the crypt beneath the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol building. Yet ever the one to avoid grandiosities, Washington instead insisted on being buried in a new vault on Mount Vernon, the place he loved more than any other. His tomb is fittingly simple, a vault with an iron gate at which he and his closest family are buried. Outside of it are two obelisks, which mark the graves of other Washington relatives who died in the 19th century. A short walk from Washington's grave is another memorial marker, this one honoring the enslaved African Americans who worked on Mount Vernon. Both were somber sights to behold. The former, a tomb of a man who did so much in his day to establish the precedence of our government still in place. The latter, a marker of horrendous evils inflicted by that same man upon those who he relied on. One of the great highlights for me was that afternoon when I took a guided tour of the Mount Vernon mansion, a Palladian structure that has been often used as a model for many later neo-colonial buildings to the point that the layout and interiors seemed almost familiar to me. In some respects, it reminded me of the big farmhouse that I grew up in, from the front hall to the social rooms on the ground floor which in my old house were largely all one big room, to the formal dining room off to the side. On the upper level, the idea of having guest bedrooms is something that was very real to me, as we had more sleeping space for guests in that farmhouse than we had for ourselves, though there was only one guest bedroom in the place. On the upper level, I saw the room where Washington died, restored according to a painting from the 1830s that used eyewitness testimony to be accurate to how the room had looked 30 years before. After the deaths of George and Martha Washington and their immediate relatives, Mount Vernon fell into disrepair, owing in part to changes in the plantation economy and soil exhaustion in those well-settled parts of Virginia. I was touched to learn how the estate was honored and protected by both sides during the Civil War, being one of maybe only a handful of places considered neutral. This saved and preserved Mount Vernon from meeting the same fate as many of its peers throughout the South, which were often burnt and ransacked by the passing armies. I left Mount Vernon after a good six-hour visit and made my way northwest across northern Virginia to my hotel for the night near Dulles Airport. In general, when it comes to a bigger city like D.C., if I have my car with me, I usually prefer to find hotels that are outside of the center, but close to a train or metro line so I can leave my car in a parking ride for the day and go into town, while not having to pay downtown hotel or parking rates. I had some ideas of going in into D.C. on this trip, perhaps to visit the National Zoo, but ended up choosing not to. Instead, staying out near Dulles both that evening due to exhaustion from travel and poor sleep the night before, and out of an eye for budgetary frugality. The following day, I did make one tourist stop at the National Air and Space Museum's Udvar Hazy Center, a massive hangar near Dulles that houses the Smithsonian's impressive aircraft and spacecraft collection. There's an old Air France Concorde in there, 
as well as the Enola Gay, the B-29 that dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima on 6 August 1945. The space shuttle Discovery is also housed there, in its own wing of the Hainer, surrounded by other spacecraft, including John Glenn's Friendship 7, and a collection of German, American, and Soviet rockets. They even have Chuck Yeager's Glamorous Glennis, a Bell X-1 in which Jaeger became the first human to break the sound barrier in 1947, traveling at Mach 1. I wandered around these feats of human ingenuity and engineering, so excited to see each and every one of them. But I knew I needed to be moving again, back on the road north, hopefully to make good time in reaching that night's hotel. I left Dulles, at around 1.30, 13.30 that afternoon, driving around the western and northern sides of the Capitol Beltway to I-95 and aiming my car northeast along that great artery of the interstate system that parallels the Atlantic coast from Miami to Maine. Today, though, I would only be passing through four states. Only. Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, and Pennsylvania. As I was driving through Baltimore, taking the Fort McHenry Tunnel under Baltimore Harbor, I decided to adjust my route a bit and not go straight to my hotel in, in suburban Philly, but instead to make a stop at Pat's, the king of steaks in South Philadelphia, because, quote, it's on the way. I made it to Pat's just after 5 p.m., as the glow of the evening sun seemed to be like twilight as it shone between the old brick buildings around the intersections of South 9th Street, Wharton Street, and East Passyunk Avenue. The last time I was in Philadelphia, in October 2019, I made my first visit to Pat's after it was suggested to me as the best option for a cheesesteak by the park rangers at Independence Hall. I found it to be as good as I was told, a wonderful steak sandwich that was one of the easiest meals I've yet found to order. In my case, I get the provolone without. That is, a provolone cheesesteak without onions. On this visit, I was happy to be able to have Pats again after the pandemic kept me from traveling throughout the East for much of 2020 and 2021. These sorts of steak sandwiches, invented by working-class immigrants and their children in big old cities like Chicago and Philly, are a real wonder for American cuisine. I'd compare the influence of the cheesesteak to that of the Italian beef, a Chicago invention that is more slowly expanding and reach beyond that lakeside metropolis to be known and loved throughout the U.S. While waiting at a traffic light near the old docks on Columbus Boulevard, I looked off towards the banks of the Delaware River, at the great wharf buildings that were once the beating heart of that city's international trade. It was through one such building that my second great-grandfather, Edward Maher, arrived in this country in 1878, receiving an honorable discharge from the British Merchant Navy, in which he had served for several years. Though I don't know which wharf or which dock was the one that witnessed his arrival in America, I felt that the sorry pair I spied that in that evening in their faded grandeur could well serve as proxies for the spot where that one of my ancestors first set foot on these shores. The idea to stop at Pat's on the way into Philly was good from a geographic perspective, but as soon as I'd left Pat's and made my way back onto I-95, I quickly found that from a time and traffic perspective, that wasn't my finest moment. 
I crawled through Philly that evening, making it to my overnight hotel after an hour of bumper-to-bumper traffic. By then, I was just as exhausted as the night before, and not in the mood to try or do anything fancy. So, I sat down on the sofa in my hotel room and turned the TV to WHYY, Philadelphia's PBS station, and spent the evening watching Nature and Nova, two of my favorite shows on the air. The next morning, I woke early and quickly packed up my things, checking out of the hotel by 8.45. I made it to the 910 train at the Norristown Transportation Center with a good 15 minutes to spare, enough time to buy a new key card, the local transit smart card issued by SEPTA, the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority, and boarded the regional service bound for the center city. The plan that day was pretty simple. I wanted to visit the Academy of Natural Sciences, my favorite stop on my last trip to Philly in 2019, and then get back out to my car in Norristown and begin the last leg of the trip with the drive up to Bainhamton. As luck would have it, nothing went wrong with the trip that day. I made it into Philly by 10 a.m. and walked from Suburban Station to the Academy in good time, arriving about five minutes after they opened their doors for the day. The Academy of Natural Sciences is, in my humble opinion, the best natural history museum in the East. When it comes to natural history museums, I'm especially fond of the dioramas, the displays of taxidermied animals on a naturalistic backdrops, of which the Academy has plenty spread out across three floors. Their dinosaur collection is smaller than either the American Museum in New York or the Smithsonian's in Washington. But when it comes to dioramas, Philly has them both beat. This is especially true compared to the ones in New York, where the rooms are so dark that it almost feels hard to really get an appreciation for the animals on display. My two favorite natural history museums in the U.S. are my, quote, home museum, the Field Museum in Chicago, and the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, both of which ought to be the poster children, or better yet, the type species of American natural history museums, and how they set the standard that other museums ought, again, in my opinion, to follow. While I was at the Academy, I noticed there was a film crew in the dinosaur hall. I looked to see who was on camera and was surprised to find it was British documentary filmmaker Dan Snow. My general rule of thumb when, I, when running into famous people is to treat them like anyone else, give them their space, and don't disrupt what they're doing. How would you feel if you were working and some random guy walked up to you and started chatting? I later had a very short but pleasant exchange with him on Twitter about seeing him there. Nice guy. I wandered around the halls of the Academy of Natural Sciences for a good two hours, just soaking all of it in. When I first agreed to come to Bainhamton for my PhD, one of the big things I agreed to myself was that I'd take advantage of being so close to so many wonderful cities with astounding museums to visit, as many of them as I could. Because of the pandemic, I haven't been able to be as thorough at that promise as I would, want, as I would have wanted. But I'm confident in the future, as I find my way into better jobs, that I'll be able to afford the odd weekend trip to see places such as this. From the Academy, I went down into the subway under Market Street and took the trolley to 30th Street, 
exiting at Philadelphia's Grand Amtrak Terminal, where I had a quick lunch of a chicken teriyaki bento box and looked into how to get back to my car in Norristown. I could either wait an hour and catch the same train that I took that morning back out to the suburbs, or I could take a timelier route on Philly's L and interurban services and get there far sooner. Naturally, then, I chose the latter, returning to the subway to catch the L to 69th Street, where I transferred to the Norristown High Speed Line, a 13.4-mile, 21.6-kilometer interurban that runs by, among other things, Villanova University. So, at 12.40, I found myself back in my car in the Norristown Transportation Center's garage, quickly writing out some postcards and setting my navigation system to take me north to my final stop on this longest commute, my place of work itself, Binghamton, New York. The last leg of the trip was the shortest, a mere 2.5 hours between Norristown and Binghamton, along the northeast extension of the Pennsylvania Turnpike, Interstate 476, to the northern edge of the Wyoming Valley just outside of Scranton, and then a quick jump up Interstate 81 and across the New York border to the Susquehanna Valley and Binghamton. I finally arrived at my apartment at 4.30 p.m. on Thursday, 11 August, a full 14 days after leaving home. Elements of this trip have been in the back of my head for a while. Over the past few years, I've considered driving back to Binghamton via D.C. or Philly, having usually done so via Cleveland or Pittsburgh. There are places in all these cities that I've wanted to see for a long time, wishes that my younger self had that I'm finally fulfilling. This longest commute took me through 14 states, Missouri, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New York. The trip in full saw me travel 3,022 miles, 4,863 kilometers, across much of the Midwest, south, and northeast of this country. So, that's it. That's the story. To those of you who have been listening and reading over the last three weeks, from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you. This episode, number 39, marks the end of season one. I started the Wednesday blog on a whim one morning after a sleepless night in March 2021, after I decided I wanted to write something personal and non-academic for a change. At the time, I said I'd stick with it as long as it was fun and not tedious. Well, that first run of 38 blog posts set the stage for the podcast, which I started on another whim after dinner one night in November 2021. About halfway through the first season of the podcast, I decided to ca- I'd call the season over after a max of 40 episodes to try and keep things even with the number of blog posts I published before the podcast started. So here we are. I hope The Longest Commute has been fu- as fun for you to hear as it was for me to experience and later write. And I'll be back in the coming weeks, potentially next week, we'll see with more episodes of the Wednesday blog. Season two is beginning. So long, everyone. The Wednesday blog is written, read, and produced by me, Sean Kane, and I also came up with the theme music. 
You can learn more about my work at linktree slash sthosdkane. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash S-T-H-O-S-D-K-A-N-E. There you'll find links to my website and my blog. Thanks. Thanks as well to my regular listeners, including monthly supporter Elizabeth Duke. You can support my podcast and more by clicking the link in the show notes. I appreciate it. This podcast is distributed by Anchor. Learn more at anchor.fm.